Dear Mr. Stern, at a time when the public's confidence is shaken by headlines reporting the breach of trust by corporate executives, it is important for there to be maintained a sense of professionalism in commercial sports. That sense was severely shaken in the now notorious officiating during Game 6 of the Western Conference Finals between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Sacramento Kings. This is a letter Ralph Nader wrote to David Stern in June 2002 after Game 6 of the Western Conference Finals, the most controversial game in NBA history. Nader is a political activist, best known for his multiple presidential runs, where he received nearly 3 million votes in the 2000 election. He is also a huge sports fan. As the judicious Washington Post sports columnist Michael Wilbon wrote this Sunday, too many of the calls in the fourth quarter, when the Lakers received 27 foul shots, were stunningly incorrect, all against Sacramento. After noting that the three referees in Game 6 are three of the best in the game, he wrote, I have never seen officiating in a game of consequence as bad as that in Game 6, when Scott Pollard, on his sixth and final foul, didn't as much as touch Shaq, didn't touch any part of him. You could see it on TV, see it at courtside. It wasn't a foul in any league in the world. Nader continued to outline the calls he found most egregious, including Kobe Bryant's elbow to the nose of Kings point guard Mike Bibby, before finally challenging the NBA's power structure. Your problem in addressing the pivotal Game 6 situation is that you have too much power. Where else can decision makers, the referees, escape all responsibility to admit serious error and have their bosses, you, find those wronged who dare to speak out critically? Integrity, by which we take you to mean professionalism of the referees, has to be earned. And when it is not, it has to be questioned. You and your league have a large and growing credibility problem. Referees are human and make mistakes, but there comes a point that goes beyond just a random display of poor performance. That point was reached in Game 6. Nader then, in typical Nader fashion, gave the NBA an ultimatum. It seems that you have a choice. You can continue to exercise your absolute power to do nothing. You should know, however, that absolute power invites a time when it will be challenged and changed. No government in our country can lawfully stifle free speech and fine those who exercise it. The NBA, under present circumstances, can stifle and fine both players and coaches who speak up. There is no guarantee that this tyrannical status quo will remain stable over time should you refuse to bend to reason and the reality of what occurred. We look forward to your considered response. Sincerely, Ralph Nader. How much can we learn about the conspiracy from just one game? I'm Tim Livingston. This is Whistleblower. Episode 6, Fit for a King. He was the first commissioner in sports who was not a sports guy. Stern was a businessman from day one, and he's the first commissioner in that role. This is when businessmen started gravitating to sports, and David Stern was a product of that. You probably remember that line from the last episode. That's Darren Rovell, executive producer at the Action Network and a friend of David Stern's. 
My team and I are still in New York, chasing FBI agent Phil Scala. But before we talk to the feds, we need to get more insight into former Commissioner Stern and how the NBA operated. Stern, the way to deal with whenever there was questions of integrity was just to talk about why he thought it was okay. For example, the way he got out of the whole draft thing is he's like, okay, I'm not going to take part in the NBA lottery anymore. Let's just have it. The deputy commissioner will now do this. The first conspiracy to plague David Stern's tenure as commissioner took place in 1985 when the New York Knicks were awarded the NBA's first draft pick. It was the league's first ever draft lottery. Okay, so um, we'll start the machine and we'll draw for the first pick. Number 14. At that time, the draft was determined by large envelopes spinning in a hopper, but those envelopes were later replaced by the ubiquitous lottery ping pong balls. Well, this is where the actual lottery takes place prior to the studio show. In here, we, uh, we draw for the top three picks using the lottery machine over here, and then we slot the remaining teams four through 14. Once the lottery is done, which has just happened now, the next step is for us to go into the back room and uh, Ernst & Young will stuff the envelopes with the appropriate winning logos, seal them up, and then deliver them to Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum in the studio for the announcement. Controversy has continued to plague the process to this day. That actually doesn't really lend to changing the dialogue about whether it's rigged or not. And I was actually part of this in 2002 and 2003 in the Yao Ming draft and the LeBron James draft. I had said to the league, you know, you guys like show the ping pong balls, but it's a cut video. Like, would you ever let any of us behind the scenes to actually see it? And in 2002 and 2003, I was in the lottery ballroom where they confiscated our phones and actually saw how it worked, that there's a million different combinations that four balls come up, that they look on the wall, and then they match it up. And I'm thinking to myself, the league could have easily told this, like, it was complete luck. It was, and you see that it's complete luck. Why not show that? And we could have had so many conversations just gone because it's like, oh, Houston got Yao Ming or, or certainly the LeBron draft. So at least they got to the point where they said, well, let's give journalists the access to it. But again, it was never, he, he didn't care about extinguishing public fires because he was sure about how he thought about it and that's all that mattered to him. In addition to the NBA betting scandal and draft conspiracy, Stern dealt with a lot of controversies in his 30 years as commissioner. The move of the Sonics from Seattle to Oklahoma City, a problematic dress code, two lockouts, the rescinded Chris Paul to the Lakers trade, an ill-fated microfiber ball, the mouse in the palace brawl, and the guns in the locker room incident, to name a few. And if you brought one of these up to Stern, you probably weren't in line for a polite response. Sports radio host Jim Rome found that out the hard way. You know, New Orleans won the draft lottery, which of course produced the usual round of speculation that maybe the lottery was fixed. I know that you appreciate a good conspiracy theory as much as the next guy. Was the fix in for the lottery? Uh, you know, I have two answers for that. I'll, I'll give you the easy one. No, and a statement. Shame on you for asking. You know, I, I understand why you would say that to me, and I wanted to preface it by saying it respectfully. I think it's my job to ask because I think people wonder. No, it's ridiculous, but that's okay. I, I know, you know, I I know that back, you think it's ridiculous, you but I don't think the question is ridiculous because I know people think that. 
stop beating I'm your not wife saying yet? that I do, but I think it's my job to ask you that. I, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Yeah, I don't know if that's fair. To be clear, Rome was never accused of beating his wife. Stern was evoking a famous logic game. By asking Rome this question, Stern is employing a rhetorical move intended to put Rome in an impossible position, one where Rome implicates himself no matter how he answers the question. It doesn't matter if Rome answers yes or no. Either answer implies that he has, in fact, beaten his wife. So that's a David Stern response instead of what could have been three or four sentences of, no, it was not rigged. And But then, obviously, like since he doesn't give that response, you're like, well, if it would be so easy to give a response that it wasn't rigged, well, it must be rigged then. He didn't really do himself any favors. And I loved the man, by the way. I mean, I had a great relationship with him. He has a big heart, and you know, but he's built the way he's built. And it's one of the reasons why the NBA is where it is. But it's also one of the reasons why the conversations involving rigging and gambling and everything else continue to fester. Rovell makes a good point here. Stern could easily just say no, but that's not exactly Stern's style. And I was trying to be as respectful as possible. I'm just saying that people wonder about that, but that was not a cheap thrill. Well, I got no thrill out of that. It's a cheap trick. No, flopping is a cheap trick. No, no. But listen, you've been successful in making a career out of it, and I keep coming on. Making so a career of am. what, though? Commissioner, see, that, that, I take great offense to that. Making a career of what? What offense? Cheap thrills? Take, are you taking offense? I am now. I now I am. If you're saying now that I've made a career your, of making cheap thrills. I'm, you know, uh, taking on the world, and now Jim Rome is pouting? I love it. One of Tim Donahue's primary accusations was that the NBA extended playoff series turned both itself and its TV partners tens of millions of dollars in extra cash for every additional game played. How did they do that? According to Donahue, it was simple. The league assigned its company men referees to any playoff series that needed extending. These referees, according to Donahue, understood the system and the factors at play. NBA playoff series are all best of seven, and the refs knew the league wanted to avoid four game sweeps whenever possible and that Game 7s made more money than Game 6s. There was also a financial incentive for the referees in extending a series. Playoff bonus checks make up a large chunk of a referee's salary. The more games, the more checks. Plus, referee assignments were determined by the league. If referees thought the league wanted a certain outcome, it's in their best interest to produce that outcome, or it was unlikely they were going to work those games in the future. Here's Rovell breaking down the economics of NBA TV deals. I mean, the, the main money is the TV money, and whether the TV money, you know, if it's a four out of seven and you have a four-game series, the TV is going to lose money, and there's going to be make-dos, make-goods, and then when it comes time to renegotiate, they're going to look at their numbers. And so a game five is more valuable than a game four, a game six is more valuable than a game five, and a game seven is more valuable than a game six. And the reason for that is because usually the casual audience doesn't come in until after game four. Certainly in Jordan, he's not a basketball player. He's like a ballerina that just is, has a ball in his hand. Or Shaq and how big Shaq is. And so there's certain magnets that the NBA had that could draw out that casual interest. And as you get into more and more games, you're going to make more money. Basically from 
from 84 to 1993, let's say, we went from uh, double digits, 20, 30 million a year to hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And then after Jordan won the three titles, then it just got out of hand because of what TV was doing. After that, that's when it started getting into the billions. So now we're talking about there's the networks, ABC, ESPN, Disney, and TNT are, you know, signed long-term contracts worth billions and billions of dollars. And so behind the NFL, the NBA is the most expensive programming. So the NFL, ESPN for Monday Night Football is paying about $100 million a game for Monday Night Football. The NBA is pretty much in the number two spot. When asked about his dream NBA Finals matchup on the Dan Patrick Show in 2004, David Stern infamously responded, Lakers versus Lakers. I asked Rovell how it affected the NBA's finances if a large market team, i.e. the Lakers, reached the finals as opposed to a small market team. I mean, it totally depends. It would have been a disaster in 1986 if the Bucs made the NBA Finals. Total disaster. If the Bucs made the finals now, you can't really say that. You have uh, Giannis, who's an amazing player, um, and people love him, and he's so dynamic, and he breaks all the rules of what a human being can do. And Milwaukee has now been, because of their their branding, their new owners, their arena, Milwaukee's seen as like one of those three or four teams that if you don't have a team, you take them. So that's just an example of over time. And if you, you you even see in sports marketing now, it used to be if you're, you know, an okay player in New York, you're going to get more money than a great player. And that's just not true. I mean, look at LeBron's dollars when he was in Cleveland and how relevant he was. How about the 2002 Western Conference Finals, Lakers-Kings? Lakers obviously have Kobe and Shaq, probably the two most marketable players in the game at that time versus the Kings um, who have some... Vladi Divac. <laughs> My personal Page, favorite. Paige Stojakovic. <laughs> Scott Pollard. Yeah, it's amazing. And I actually know where I watched game six. I can tell you exactly. Many of us remember where we watched game six, but Sacramento Kings center Scott Pollard was actually on the court in crunch time before fouling out and being forced to watch the final minutes from the bench. Looking back on my MBA and my whole career, college and high school even, there were several teams that I was on that had a chance to win it all. The team that I think should have absolutely and didn't, as far as my NBA experience, was the 2002 Sacramento Kings. Uh, we got to the Western Conference Finals and once again got knocked out by the Lakers. Even though we were the favorite team, we had the best record in the NBA. The 2002 Sacramento Kings were, were so special because we shouldn't have been. I mean, you think about it. We had a rookie from Turkey who was a Muslim. We had guys from Serbia, Eastern Bloc guys that Peja learned how to speak English in the NBA locker room. Uh, Chris Weber had had stumbled around and had injuries and had issues with coaches and, and being coachable and all that stuff and had a bad reputation. And, and he's our superstar. And then we had Mike Bibby and Bobby Jackson and Doug Christie and everybody was so unselfish with winning on our mind and that's all we cared about. That's why that team was so special because it really boiled down to, are we gonna get along and just win games because we have the talent to do it or are we gonna worry about my individual touches, my points, my rebounds, my minutes? And everyone from one to 15 put their personal stuff aside and that's why we won. I mean, what a carnival of characters, what a circus 
of personalities. And we were able to put all that together and be so much fun to watch. The Kings entered Game 6 of the 2002 Western Conference Finals, leading the series three games to two. The Lakers had won the previous two championships, but the 0-1-0-2 Kings had the best regular season record in basketball, 61-21. A victory in Game 6 wouldn't only secure the Kings a spot in the NBA Finals. With a significantly weaker Eastern Conference foe, the Nets, waiting for them in that Finals, a win in Game 6 would have almost certainly sealed the Kings' first ever championship. Well, the, the, the Kings are going to have to play through the tough officiating, and they're going to have to find a way to win. They are shooting. I grew up in Los Angeles, a Lakers fan, but the officiating in the 2002 Western Conference Finals was tough to watch for anyone who loves the sport. Here's Pollard's take on the calls in Game 6. The officiating in the 2002 Western Conference Finals was questionable and questioned by lots and lots of people. Even Ralph Nader wrote a letter. Let's say, okay, I'm not saying this, but let's just say for discussion's sake that game six was fixed, okay? If people think game six, which, which was very weird game, it was a game where a lot of calls went the way of the Lakers. Kings players, we are experiencing it early. It wasn't at the end of the game. It was early. We're, there was calls. We we're just going, all right, raise your eyebrows. Fine. That's not a foul. I'm yeah. sorry. But you know one of the problems that Pollard gets himself into? Halftime we go in, and I distinctly remember our leader, Chris, looking at us and going, you know what? If it's eight on five, meaning the three refs and their five starters or their five players, then let's beat five on eight. Let's go. And we all said, you know what? He's right. Who's going to settle this Sacramento team down? Who's going to say we are a better team than Los Angeles? And that's why we're going to win. Well, they've answered. Even if we got to beat eight people out there, we're that good. We're that much better than the Lakers, and we proved it. 61 wins in that season. We proved we were the best team in the league. We could beat five Lakers and three refs if that's what it's going to be. And so we kind of went out in the second half with that mentality. I say kind of because we were still in foul trouble. They're not going to luck into a victory in this game or the series. They're going to have to take it at the Lakers and say, we're a better team. Entering the fourth quarter of game six, the score was tied 75 to 75. Pollard and King starting center Vladi Divac were both in foul trouble with four apiece. In the NBA, a player is disqualified after his sixth foul. Steal the foul, run down, got Pollard and fouled out five apiece. Now, Vladi Divac, Chris Weber, Derek Fisher with, with four, 307 remaining in the fourth quarter. I'm fouled out in 12 minutes. Vladi's fouled out and not mentioned more than that. And Chris fouls out in the fourth quarter. We're all looking at each other and you saw it. You, there's tons of clips of us just looking at each other like laughing. Like, really? Are you kidding me? Mike Bibby can't believe it. Mike Bibby just went to the ground and said, what is happening here? That, that was a foul. Meanwhile, on the other end, this happened and nothing, no call there. There's a whole bunch of those clips out there, and I don't mean to fuel the conspiracy theories, but there's a whole lot of questionable stuff that happens. If you break down any single NBA game, there's gonna be questionable stuff, but I don't know that if you break down an NBA game, there's gonna be as many questionable calls as there were in that game six of the Western Conference Finals. The 0102 Lakers averaged 26 free throws per game that season. In just the fourth quarter of game six, they shot 27. The Kings shot nine. 
Many of the fowls and the kings didn't live in the subjective gray area we've spoken about in prior episodes. There were several phantom fouls where Sacramento players didn't touch the Lakers. And when Kobe Bryant swung an elbow, blooding Mike Bibby's face, it was Bryant who ended up on the foul line, not Bibby. Bibby is here in front. He's trying to hook, and Kobe's trying to bust through. Trying to hook? He's standing there. But he put his arm around his waist. Now Kobe's trying to break through, but on coming through, that's when he catches him with that elbow. Bibby was making the smart play. Then he just gets handled right in the nose, and his nose is bleeding. Is that how the fighters handle it? They just jam your nose full of stuff. That would have been a TKO. (laughs) The Lakers won the game 106-102 and set up a Game 7 in Sacramento that would determine which team advanced the Finals. After Game 6 in the Western Conference Finals 2002, the Kings players, we walk off the court shaking our heads. We're all saying to ourselves, that's some bullshit. It's, It's complete garbage. We got robbed. Whatever, okay? The sob stories go, we're in the locker room. You know what? We were supposed to beat eight on five today. We didn't beat eight. We beat five of them, but the other three got us, whether it was three players or three refs, whatever you want to call that. That's when doubt trickled in. And on the plane home from L.A. back to Sacramento, were we trying to pump each other up in the post-locker room? Were we trying to pump each other? All right, that's it. They got us. But it's game seven. Now, we kept saying all that stuff to each other, to ourselves, but I don't know if we believed it. We got guys that are shooting air balls. We've got guys that are missing layups. We got guys that are not getting rebounds, not boxing out. These aren't fouls. These aren't bad calls. These aren't contested shots. We, we're blowing it. We're blowing it in game seven. We're making stupid errors. You know what that is? That's mental mistakes. We talk to talk, but I don't believe we felt it in our souls, in our hearts, that we were going to win game seven and we played like it. Pollard blames his team for not stepping it up in Game 7, but how could they? The thing they'd worked their whole lives for had just been taken from them. The best team in basketball was rudderless, broken. Sure, they still had Game 7, but they didn't really have a chance. You look at these clips of Game 6 and you hear the commentary of Tim Donahue, like, oh, they're company men. And, you you know, on the one hand, I'm like, dude, this guy's just trying to make money. I'm not mad at him. He can say whatever he wants. Who knows if it's true? Who knows if it's not? Only he does. And his experience and the, and the people he's alleging these things about, they're the only ones that know. I don't know. I don't go down that rabbit hole because I don't want to believe that my NBA championship with the, uh, the Sacramento Kings was taken away by the league. I don't want to believe that. That sounds terrible. You know, but what I will say is it looks suspect. The officiating in game six was so bad, it's become a running joke in the NBA over the years. Here's a clip of former Lakers center Shaquille O'Neal and former Sacramento Kings forward Chris Webber discussing the game. And you know what? I've played against many best players against you. The worst type of team to play is a team that ain't scared. Yeah. Yeah. All the other teams we play, but like every time we match up against y'all, y'all really wasn't scared, so we had to work. Yeah. And that's why we took y'all to game seven where we beat y'all on y'all floor. Yeah. <laughs> just, all it took was you and some dirty reps. We ain't supposed to talk about that. If you couldn't make out Weber's last comment over the laughter, he said all it took was you and some dirty refs. And so it brings tears to my eyes for sure because I remember the camaraderie. I remember my teammates. I remember wanting to bust ass just for my teammates. That was it. We wanted to win for each other. And I'll never forget that family. We were all locked in on one thing and knew. We just all knew in our hearts we were going to win and we didn't. And 
that that frustration is going to be with me for the rest of my life, and I know it is with a lot of the guys on that team because we just knew in our hearts that we were supposed to win. I wish we had won one for our team, for the coach. We all wanted one so badly for the organization uh, and also for the fans in Sacramento. The Kings are the only major professional sports team in Sacramento, and the city lives and dies with the black and purple. The franchise over the years has seen a lot more downs than ups, which made the 2002 Western Conference Finals all the more heartbreaking. A few months ago, we flew to Sacramento to interview three Kings fans, Cassidy, Cassidy's dad Chuck, and Cassidy's childhood friend Evan, to hear about the Kings-Lakers series from the people it affected most. The Kings are the heartbeat of the city, and they mean everything. I mean, they're the only show in town. It's the lifeblood of the city. You're walking around downtown, you see people in Kings gear. It's really the thing that people outside of Northern California know Sacramento for. People know Sacramento because of the Kings. I haven't been in a city where there's such loyal and crazy and passionate fandom. I concur with Cassidy. They're our only major league team, and major league sports do have an impact on a community and how they pull together. We're in the Sacramento suburbs, sitting in Chuck's kitchen. It's 18 years later, but the wounds from that series still haven't healed. When the Kings lost to the Lakers in the 2002 Western Conference Finals, I felt absolutely heartbroken. I felt crestfallen. It was a lousy feeling for days. Looking back on it, it just was the most terrible thing that could have happened to the Kings at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was crushing, and I don't mean to overstate it. And I was older, I'd been through loss in my life and job change, but you know, sports are sports and they're big and they, they are so big here. It was big for the community, make no mistake. And it wasn't just big for a day or two. I still think about that to this day, 18 years later. Well, I will say whenever the Tim Donaghy allegations came out, you know, or surfaced a couple years ago, it was like, oh, okay. And then going back and recognizing, oh, he did ref in those really controversial Western Conference Finals games, um, or at least that, that game six for sure. So, and you're a big basketball fan, obviously know everything about the Kings. Is it your perception that Tim Donaghy refed game six? Um, I know he ref. I yeah. I think I think he ref game six. I know he refed at least one or two of those. Uh, did he not? He did not. Really? He didn't ref any of those. Two thousand. Uh, I forget the other guy's name, but it wasn't. So well, here's here's the rub. Tim Donahue is the corrupt official, but he didn't ref that game. Dick Pavetta did. It wasn't Tim Donahue's dream to become an NBA referee. He had the family connections and it just happened. Dick Pavetta? Dick Pavetta wasn't going to leave this planet without becoming an NBA official. Pavetta attended regional referee tryouts for eight years and was rejected eight times before finally getting the call up to the NBA. A spindly six feet, 150 pounds soaking wet, Pavetta didn't fit the mold for an NBA referee. They wanted strong, manly men. Pavetta was a marathoner, skin and bones. Bavetta's first year was in 1975, and he never missed an assigned game. He refed 2,635 straight contests until his retirement in 2014, three more than baseball's Ironman Cal Ripken. And Bavetta wasn't just a referee, he was part of the show. In 2007, he raced NBA legend Charles Barkley for charity. After the race, in a bizarre scene, Bavetta and Barkley kiss on the lips. 
Here's Tim Donahue's breakdown of Bavetta. I mean, Dick Bavetta, who was the top ref at the time, you know, he didn't hide the fact that he said he was the NBA's go-to guy. He was put on game sixes to make sure game sevens happened. When you look at a lot of game sixes over the history of the, the NBA, most of them don't get to a game seven. And, uh, you know, when he ref them, a lot of times they did. What was Bavetta's reputation amongst referees? You know, people knew that he basically cheated. Spent a lot of time with him, but unfortunately he was the top guy in the league and, and my goal was to be an NBA Finals referee. So he's like, listen, this is what you have to do. This isn't rocket science here. You, you have to, you know, create a, a flow to a game and, and you have to favor stars and, and don't put them to the bench and, and do certain things that is marketable for the league. And if you're not gonna do that, you're not gonna advance. So I was just following in his footsteps with what he was doing because he was the top guy in the league. All right, that's what Donahue had to say. But what did the NBA have to say about Bavetta? The NBA Commission Pedowitz Report, the report that documented the league's internal investigation into the scandal that we referenced in episode one, looked into Donahue's claims about Bavetta and found Bavetta to be a somewhat controversial figure. The report interviewed multiple referees who said that they believe Bavetta was highly conscious of how he's viewed and wants to be liked by everyone, and that some referees were clearly put off by his antics. The report went on to say, a few ex-referees, including those who have held or hold supervisory positions with the NBA, used harsher words to describe Bavetta's style, suggesting that his play calling at times reflects an effort to keep games close or to ingratiate himself with a team. And what about sports writers? After the 2002 Western Conference playoffs, one of the country's biggest NBA writers, Bill Simmons, posed the question, what was the most disturbing subplot of the playoffs? Simmons went on to answer, the officiating. Also the most disturbing subplot of the past four playoffs. If you examine the last four NBA playoff campaigns, during every situation where the league definitively needed one of the two teams involved to win, either to A, change the momentum of a series so it didn't end prematurely, B, keep an attractive big market team alive in a series, or C, advance an attractive big market team to another round, the officiating appeared to be slanted towards the team that needed that game. I use the phrase appeared to be because reviewing an official's performance is purely subjective. Maybe I'm dead wrong. Simmons then named the seven playoff games he found most controversial over the past four years, including, of course, Game 6 the O2 Western Conference Finals, of which Simmons wrote, From an officiating standpoint, the most one-sided game of the past decade. At least six dubious calls against the Kings in the fourth quarter alone. LA averaged 22 free throws a game during the first five games of the series, then attempted 27 freebies in the fourth quarter alone of Game 6. Rumors that David Stern wanted to pull a Vince McMahon and declare himself special guest referee prove unfounded. At the end of the article, Simmons noted that Dick Bavetta was assigned to every one of the seven games he found most controversial. We fact-checked and Bavetta was only assigned to six of the seven, but still, when Dick Bavetta took the court in a playoff game, controversy always seemed to ensue. My thoughts on Dick Bavetta 
are fairly complicated. I'm a big believer in innocent until proven guilty. And we have a lot of circumstantial evidence. That's what we have. Nobody's going to convict Dick Bavetta and friends of a conspiracy. This is Carmichael Dave, a revered sports talk radio host in Sacramento, known for his irreverence and incredible, all-encompassing love for the Sacramento Kings. It's one of those things where you look at it and it's obvious, but is there a reasonable doubt that the refs just had a terrible game, that there wasn't anything sinister? I guess. He represents something terrible that happened in my life as a sports fan. Um, But if it ever were to come out that he was complicit in this, I would feel bad for his family. I would feel bad for his children. I would feel bad for his grandchildren. Imagine having your father or grandfather or hell, mother or grandmother. Imagine having somebody who is responsible for bringing you into this world who provides a moral and ethical compass for you. Imagine knowing that they sold out, that they cheated, that they robbed a community of something. And just imagine knowing that's who your role model is. Imagine having to live under that shadow. It's gross. When somebody says, hey, how do you even know game six was a screw job? Lakers just outplayed them. It's like, dude, <laughs> look at the box score. Fourth quarter alone. The Lakers, it was like a constant procession to the free throw line. You don't get that many free throws in the fourth quarter. You could bring a Gatlin gun out and like just level the whole bench and you're going to get like a flagrant and some fouls. You're not getting mid to high 20s in the fourth quarter. If the other team's being aggressive and you're fouling them, you can get 100 fouls in the fourth quarter. There's no rule saying you can't shoot that many free throws. But you go back and it's on YouTube. Go back and look at how, for example, the most famous one is, is, is when Mike Bibby's face fouled Kobe Bryant's elbow. Like literally Kobe Bryant brought his elbow up into Mike's face, broke his nose, was bleeding, had to have Q-tips shoved up his nose, and the refs called a foul on that. Go back and look at uh, every single time Shaquille O'Neal got breathed on and they called a foul. If you go back and you watch the fourth quarter alone and you watch it from a non-biased, not Kings, not Lakers perspective, you're going to say, my God, like this thing is not only tilted, but you're also going to notice for those who are going to listen to this, just look for the shots in the last part of the fourth quarter. Look for the look for the zooms on Rick Adelman's face. Look, look for the close up. At one point, you can see in his face, and when you see it, you're, you're going to smile and go, wow, Dave's right. You see that he's he's saying, I, I can't even argue anymore. Like, I'm in a dream world. I hope everybody sees this. Either I'm batshit crazy or we're being screwed out of this game. And he just resigned himself to sitting down. I think he had mentally broken because I think any other situation, he would have been ejected a long time ago. He knew he couldn't get ejected. He knew he had to be there and, and go with it with his team. So he just sat down and resigned himself to the fact that they were getting screwed out of that game. One of the saddest things I've ever seen in sports. Watching the dreams of one of the greatest basketball coaches in history, Rick Adelman, who never ended up winning an NBA title, getting crushed in real time, is as tragic and bizarre to watch as Dave describes. Here's what Dave had to say about what made game six different from other controversial games. It's a play. 
It's a fail Mary. It's a, he beat it out at first. Uh, it's it's a, the foot was on the line. It's, it's a bad call. How often do we talk about an entire game and specifically a quarter of bad calls? That's why this is different. This wasn't a mistake. Referees and umpires are human beings. They make mistakes. They make horrible mistakes sometimes. And I let them off the hook because they are human beings. The best referees and the best umpires are the ones that you don't know. You never hear about. If you're doing your job perfectly, you're anonymous. Think about that. You don't get a card. You don't get a highlight reel. You don't get a draft to do a fantasy team. If you do your job as a referee perfectly, nobody knows who the hell you are. So when you do screw up, that's the only time people notice you. I have empathy for that. This wasn't that. This was three referees continually making bad calls for an entire 48 minutes and very specifically for 12 minutes in the most important part of that game with a lot of other things going on behind it. That's why this is different and that's why that stood out so much. Existing only in the background was never Dick Bavetta's MO. I asked Dave how he would feel if something were to come out that proved definitively that this game was rigged. Well, I'll use a really inappropriate analogy because that's what I do and it's not apples to apples, but it's almost like if, uh, well, I won't, I won't use a family member, let me get silly. Uh, if your dog was kidnapped 10 years ago and you found it brutally murdered by the side of the river, and then 10 years later, the FBI told me that they had caught the person um, that did it uh, and, and had found proof that this guy murdered your dog, but he's not going to get arrested and there's going to be no charges. It's like, okay, I mean, I guess like it doesn't bring my dog back. It doesn't erase all the pain I've had since my dog got murdered by the side of the river. Uh, it doesn't do anything to anyone else. We don't get a ring. Even if they offered us a ring, we wouldn't take it because that's janky. Um, I would, it would be sort of a, it would be helpful in conversations because then the dumb douchebags are like, there was no conspiracy. Okay, well, here you go. And they still won't believe it. Uh, but it doesn't change anything other than, I guess, maybe like 5% peace of mind. But great, 5% peace of mind. You had, uh, you know, 9 and 10 and 12-year-old kids and adults and families that cried actual tears that were devastated uh, because they lost the chance at seeing the name Sacramento uh, on the trophy and the national recognition and civic pride. Listen, let's not kid ourselves, man. Nobody, nobody died. It's not cancer. It's, it's not the end of the world. Uh, and I'm aware of that. I have that perspective, but as a sports fan, uh, it's as close as you get. If we ever found out that, that, uh, it was, that there was more proof involved, uh, that they nailed down that, that Dick Bavetta and everyone involved came out and admitted it. Fine. Great. Um, but it, doesn't change anything. For Kings fans and all the millions of other fans who felt they were victims of a rigged game or rigged system, there is no happy ending. There is no pleasure in, I told you so. They never got to experience the jubilation that comes from watching their favorite team, a group of men they'll never meet, but know better than most members of their family, hoist a trophy, and in that moment feel the hundreds, thousands of losses that that team suffered, that they suffered instantaneously dissipate. The fans of Sacramento didn't get to experience that feeling in 2002, and 18 years later, the 01-02 season is still the closest the franchise has ever come to winning an NBA championship. But 
when it comes to game six i mean i'm sorry saying hey you think game six is a conspiracy it would be like me going up to somebody and kicking them in the dick and then being like oh dude you believe in kicks in the dick it's like yeah dude it just happened i literally experienced it so people can say what they want but game six was a game six was a screw job next time on whistleblower nba referees can manipulate any game they want to now i'm not saying the nba fixes games i'm just saying the referees told us every year they got emails before and after every game letting them know what to work on and maybe something that's coming up in a game with a certain player yeah it was during the playoffs that there'd be meetings in the morning around 11 a.m and they would show you plays and they wanted you to concentrate on certain plays that night in the game and those plays always went in favor of the team that was down in the series. Do you remember any specific games or series that stand out? Definitely Dallas Mavericks and uh, Houston Rockets. Mark Cuban felt that these calls were missed and uh, you know started to do the stuff that Mark Cuban did back then which was bitch and complain. Is this the worst loss that you've ever experienced? No, when I was three years old and I was playing on the Pee Wee team, we got beat in the last second. Ask me a real fucking question, okay? Mark Cuban's biggest controversy over the course of his ownership career is more of an ongoing personality trait than any one event, which is just his longtime war against the officials. He never really got over losing you know, what was his first NBA Finals. He really saw it as getting screwed by the league. I'd say 80% of the stuff that he suggests about officials and what they should change, 80% of it's right. My advice for you guys is probably the same as the advice that I got, which is just send him an email. Um, and he did write back four minutes after I reached out to him. So he sees the emails and he responds if he wants to. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Colo Casio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co-producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Sound design mixing and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional mixing by Devin Johnson. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord in the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bagakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, thank you to Liz Livingston and Tali Ravid for your invaluable insights and for never letting us give up on this story. For more information about the podcast, visit whistleblowerpod.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, five stars preferably, and review. Thanks.